Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. It was a blessing to me just now even just seeing people greeting each other as you're walking into the room. I hope you've been blessed already this morning. Can I challenge you with something before we even get into the message today? Will you meet somebody new today? You know, I was joking with the first service about how we always sit in our same seats, and so I know, Adam, you're probably going to be sitting there next week if you're at church next week, because this is what we do. We just kind of in our habits, so you talk to who you talk to, and you see who you see, and you want to make sure you get out to, you know, good berries or wherever you're headed after the service. But uh, try and say hi to somebody new today. Here's, let me give you a little tip. I've done, I've done everything you can do in church to probably put your foot in your mouth. I've already done it, so let me save you some of that. Uh, just say to somebody, so how long have you gone to church here? Don't ask them if it's their first time, because when they tell you they've been going here for five years, you're going to feel real embarrassed, okay? Trust me. <laughs> but I uh, hope you're doing well, and uh, glad that you're here today. And even if you've had a terrible week, I'm glad that you made it here today. And I hope this is a, a charge in your spiritual life, uh, a refreshment, a refinement, uh, a reminder, whatever God decides to do in these moments. And we're doing this series called Encounters. I hope when we started this series was that you would have an encounter with the living God, because that will change you. But we also had a hope, as we knew we were heading into this new season, these two churches come together. For those of you who don't know, we've got a campus uh, just down the street that we're renovating right now. We're going to be debt-free. We're going to move into, and the Lord willing, in the fall, like the Lord's trying to... Yeah, for sure. We can always give you a lot of praise for that. We knew there's going to be a bunch of new people that are going to come to our church, and when they come to church, we want them to have an encounter with Jesus. Often the way that God does that is through you. You're Jesus to them. And so we want to see how Jesus interacts with people, so we have an idea how we should interact with people, and we want to get rid of some of the stereotypes we have and some of the thoughts we have about Jesus that aren't true, so they can have a genuine encounter with Jesus Christ. And so that's our hope as we do this series. And so as we look at this next passage of scriptures in John chapter 5, you have your Bible, you can turn there. In John chapter 5, I want you to have an encounter with the living God, but I also want you to think about how Jesus is interacting with people. And so let's open the scriptures together. I'll pray for us as we do that. Father, thank you that we have your word to go to. Uh, that we don't need a, a motivational talk today. We don't need somebody just to you know, pull out something Abraham Lincoln said one day and give a quote and talk about it for a while, but your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray you'd pierce our hearts with it. And I pray as we look into your word, it'd be like looking into the mirror and you'd show us ourselves and that we'd be changed as we, we bask upon the glory of your son Jesus. Help me as a preacher to exalt your son Jesus. You promise if we lift him up that people will be saved. I pray you'd save somebody today. And I pray you'd change those of us who already are saved. And God, transform us to be more and more like your son. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in the first service, I don't oftentimes tell stories about when I was a teenager. There's two reasons. One, they're all embarrassing. The second one is because we have teenagers that attend this service, and my theology tells me from reading my Bible and personal experience, none of us need encouragement to sin. And uh, much of what I would share with you would probably give ideas. You couldn't come up with some of this on your own, but it might spark other ideas that you may have. But I, I, there was one story as I was thinking about this week's passage of Scripture in John chapter 5 that I just kept coming back to in my mind. And it was when I was in high school. I had this car. I thought I was way cooler than I was. I, the thought was the key. And I had this car that my dad and I restored. And by my dad and I restoring, what I mean is that my dad restored the car and I'd watch the progress and tell him what I thought going through the progress. And it was this old Mustang hatchback. It was behind one of his, one of his buddy's garages, and he sold it to a super cheap. It was a piece of junk. We bought the thing. He painted it. My dad painted it himself. Well, we put these rims on it. I picked out. They stuck out from the car. They were real big rims, tinted the windows black, tore the back seat out of it, put two 15-inch subwoofers in the back, had amp crossover. The tech team's like, I didn't know you knew about it and that stuff. Yeah, I just like bass. Boom, boom. And so I would drive my car, and my friends would be like, I could hear you for miles. That wasn't true. What would happen, I'll tell you what a poser I was, such a loser. What I would do is I would drive up 
to like a stop sign by their house and I'd sit there for a little while and I'd crank the music. I was like, ding, 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 ding. And then I'd come driving around. They're like, you had to be like three miles away. I was like, I was just around the block, but whatever. And uh, I would do that, thought I was cool. And I grew up in Michigan. So something for you to know about Michigan is it snows there more than twice a year. <laughs> when it snows there, the whole place doesn't just shut down. They don't think it's like zombie apocalypse. Like you just keep living your life and they plow the roads and they put salt down and snow comes behind it and they just plow it again and you're supposed to still go to work and they still have school and all that stuff. And so one time it snowed and they had this basketball game at my high school that night and so I was driving up there to go to the game. Not as many people came to the game because of the snow and so all the cars were parked up by the building. And I pulled into the back of the parking lot. They had already plowed the parking lot. And so there were these big snow piles on the sides of the parking lot. But there was a fresh snow that had come down since then, about three or four inches. You know what that looked like to my eyes? That was like a winter wonderland. I was pumped. I was like, this is awesome. So I pull in the parking lot, turn the, got the bass, the bass pumping, make me think I'm cooler than I am, rev the engine up, and I just go tearing across the parking lot, and then I pull the emergency brake and power slide through the parking lot. And then you drop the emergency brake right when that stops, you punch the gas, rear-wheel drive, start doing donuts in the parking lot. It was awesome. Then I do it across the other way, music's pumping, I'm feeling like I'm awesome, snow's flying, I've turned my Mustang into a snowmobile. Do you know what a snowmobile is, Southerners? Have you heard of those things? They make devices to ride on this. It'd be such a bad investment as a Southerner. But anyway, they make snow. So I'm driving. The snow's flying everywhere. I got the windshield wipers going. I'm not really watching. There's nobody out there. I'm doing donuts and spin outs and power slides. The next thing I know, boom, boom. Boom, boom. Whoa, there's nothing out here. What happened? So I put the car in reverse. Can't go anywhere. Put the car in forward. Can't go anywhere. I get out of the car. I'm up on one of those embankments. And make snow hills that they had put up there, and the wheels aren't touching anything. They're just spinning. Now I gotta humble myself and go inside and ask a few buddies, hey, do you think you wanna come out here and help me push my car off this hill? I got stuck. Let me ask you, have you ever been stuck? Maybe you didn't grow up in the north, but maybe you got in the mud before, maybe you thought you were four by four in, in your Camry or whatever you were doing, and <laughs> something happened. And have you ever been stuck? And I was thinking about it in our spiritual lives. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you, you get stuck eventually. It just happens where you're going through and it's like you're in the valley or you're in this dry place and you're like David when he's fleeing Absalom in Psalm 63 says, in a dry and weary land where there's no water, but do you want him? And we get stuck in neutral sometimes. Sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's your sin that gets you stuck spiritually. It's like Hebrews chapter 5. Why are they immature? Because of their sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what's the problem? You're worldly, you're immature, it's, you're unspiritual. It's your own fault that you're stuck. Some of you, it's just like it just happened, and you haven't evaluated your spiritual life in a while, and you started with Jesus, you, you began, now here's the deal, just so you know, I know there's people, I've talked to some of you, just openly told me, that come to our church that don't know Jesus. And so some of you think coming to church is like your first step spiritually, or reading your Bible, or just even the, thinking the possibility that God exists is like your first step. But you know what the Bible says your first step in a relationship with God is, is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that before the service is over with, but let me ask you this question right now. What's stopping you from doing that today? What's the thing that's stopped? Why haven't you done that yet, and why wouldn't you do that today? If you've got the answer to that question by the end of this message, that's a win, and I hope you'll trust Jesus. But many of you have trusted Jesus, and you know what Jesus said? The Bible says then that God began a good work in you, because sometimes we get into this mindset of, no, I trusted that faith thing. I've taken care of that faith thing. It happened when I placed my faith in what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, when he absorbed the wrath of God that was coming against me because I'm a sinner, because I've sinned against God. We've all fallen short of his perfect standard. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's not our standard. That's his. The gift of God is eternal life, and you trust Jesus, and you're like, that's good. Wrap that up with a bow. I'm all set. No, he began a good work in you then. And he's continually calling you to next steps of faith. And don't think like the Galatians. You know what the problem? You know why the whole book of Galatians is written? He says, you started well. 
What happened? Who cut in on you? You started by faith. Now you think this is all in your power. It's all in your strength. And some of you, that's why you're stuck in your spiritual journey because you're doing like I was doing in the car. Forward's not working. Reverse isn't working. What's the problem here? And so you're praying and it feels like you're talking to yourself. And you read your Bible and you're like, God, give me a word from you. But it feels like a history book to you. And you're doing it all in your own power. Some of you, you've just kind of been there for a while. It's like Jesus wants to say to you today what he says to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're just lukewarm. I want, to, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Some of you, it's just like God's been calling you to take. Maybe your next step of faith for some of you is a small step. It's to be more patient. It's to put yourself out there in relationship. It's to trust another person even if you don't know if you can trust them. Maybe it's a bolder thing. Maybe it's more radical like going across the street and sharing the gospel with your neighbor and, and you have to bring it up. What's your next step? Because God's calling you to something. And what's stopping you from taking that next step? And we're going to see some of the reasons in our passage of Scripture today. In John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read verses 1. 1 through 9 for sure. We'll go as far as we can. We only got to about verse 10 or 11 in the, in the first service. But John chapter 5. What's happening here, John chapter 5 obviously comes right after John chapter 4. When we start reading John chapter 5, it says, after this. And you've got to go, after what? Well, in John chapter 4, we saw this woman at the well. Jesus has an encounter with her, and we see how Jesus interacts with her. And it takes her mess, turns it into his message, and sends her out as his messenger. And then there's this other guy, this nobleman, whose son is about to die. And we, get the, we see the way that Jesus interacts with this guy is not how most of us would expect. Many of us have this overly sentimentalized view of Jesus where he's going to put his arm around the guy. Come on, brother, let's go help your son out. I'm going to walk you over there. Why don't you cry on my shoulder the whole process, the whole way through it? And that's how many of us view Jesus. Let me tell you, if that's part of your problem, if you have an overly sentimentalized view of Jesus, can I tell you how to fix that? Read your Bible. Because the Jesus that many of us say we believe in and the Jesus that we encounter in the Bible are oftentimes different. And what Jesus does is he confronts this man. And so that, can seem very, that doesn't seem very Christ-like. Well, <laughs> it's Jesus, so we're going to go with it. It is Christ-like. And what he does is he uses his pain to get to the guy's problem. So here's the deal. He's not insensitive to, to the man's pain. And so I'm going to say some things in today's message. I know that some of you aren't stuck in a wheelchair because you don't want to be out of the wheelchair. I know some of you aren't stuck with infertility because you don't want a bad enough to be fertile. I, I get that. And so don't, don't hear me saying that, that insensitive thing. And here's the reality. Any of you who have an ailment, something needs to be healed, with cancer, you're going to be healed if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. The question is not if, it's when. It might not happen here on this earth. It might not be till you get to heaven. You will be healed. But what God wants to do is oftentimes use the difficulties in our life to get to the real problems in our life. And the man in the past that we just read about, he had a faith problem. And so he heals his son, but it's so that he can ultimately heal the father spiritually. So after this, John chapter 5, after this, after this is also wrapped up in that, is that John doesn't tell us everything that happened in Jesus' life. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through Mark chapter 9, verse 50 is not recorded in here. And it's probably part of the after this statement. It's probably about a year of Jesus' life. It's not like he did the nobleman's son and then the next thing was this. No, about a year later, Jesus is real popular. It's probably about the second year of his ministry. It says in verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, not the people gate, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Some of you might have a little footnote. I'll tell you what that means off to the side in your Bibles. Which has five roofed colonies. In these lay a multitude of invalids. So think hospital, but way worse than a hospital. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now to understand this story, you've got to realize many men didn't even live to be 40 years old at this time. 
He's had this condition for 38 years. And so in their time, this dude's old, for one. And he's had this experience for 38 of those years in his life. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, and you might underline that's a supernatural knowledge. He already knew everything that was going on in this guy's life, just like he knows everything about your life. They had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. And we'll just pause right there, partway through verse 9. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But isn't that kind of a weird question by Jesus? The guy's been an invalid, not able to walk. He's one of the paralyzed people we end up seeing. We don't don't usually use the words of the Bible now. He's a paraplegic. His legs didn't work. He's been there for 38 years. He's sitting by a pool. Did you see what verse 4 said? Look at your Bible. Many of you will notice in your Bible there is no verse 4. It goes right from verse 3 to verse 5. And some of you might have a note. Maybe you have a King James and there is a verse there. What happened was the verse 4 is not part of the earliest manuscripts. But it's worked its way into some of the manuscripts. And what probably happened is that a scribe wrote off onto the side an explanation of why are they hanging out at this pool? And there was this superstitious belief that if you have a King James Bible, it'll tell you, or if you have a, a little note on the side, it'll tell you, that this belief was that when the water was stirred, an angel was stirring the water. Now, what was really happening was there was probably a spring under the water that was causing the water to bubble up, and there were a lot of minerals in this water, so it looked red. There's lots of reasons why people believe what they believe, but they came up with this superstitious belief that the first person in the pool, what kind of view of grace is that, by the way? The first person who helps themselves the most. God helps those who help themselves, right? It's not in the Bible. The first person in the pool would be healed. No. The Bible's not saying that's true. It's just saying that's what they believed. That's what, that's what people believed at that time. And so this guy's here at this pool for healing. He's been in his condition for 38 years, and Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? Now think about it. Jesus doesn't ask trivial things. He's not just making small talk. He's not welcome to the guy to start a conversation here. And so read through your Bible. See all the stuff Jesus said. Some of your Bibles put all the, the words of Jesus in red letters. Read all the red letters, and you'll never see Jesus just doing small talk. He doesn't just walk up to two guys outside the temple. Hey, did you see the draft last night? The Jerusalem juggernauts in the second round got Johnny Manziel. Did you see that? It didn't really happen. Just so you, know. you can read your Bible, though, and see if it's in there. At the very least, I'm encouraging you to read your Bible. You'll never find it, but you can read it. You know, it's not like two dudes outside the temple with slurpees. Big gulps, huh? Like Jesus never does that kind of thing. When Jesus talks to somebody, he's being intentional. So what's he doing? Hundreds of people at this pool. All the sick, the invalids, all this stuff's happening. And Jesus walks up to one man. He says, do you want to be healed? Isn't that why everybody's here? What he's asking is a desire question. And so today for the outline, I'm not going to give you statements. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to ask you two questions. The first one's a desire question. So Southbridge you individually, do you want to experience life change through Jesus Christ? Do you desire life change through Jesus Christ? Now, the answer to that should be like so obvious, right? Like you heard the the worship leader this morning say, we exist to connect people to Jesus for life change. You've been around this church, you've heard that's our mission statements on print materials. You'll hear people talk about it in the lobby. You'll hear different people say, I want to connect people to Jesus for life change. Let me first of all ask you, when you hear that, who do you think of? Think of that guy at your work in your cubicle. He really needs Jesus. Why? Because he drives you nuts. (laughs) Or somebody you know that's always got problems and you're thinking, I can't fix your problems. I need to get you to Jesus. Or maybe it's the person that you're praying for. We challenge every member of our church to have at least one person a year they're praying for, they can share the gospel with, try and lead them to Jesus. Maybe it's that person because your heart breaks for the fact that if they die today, they spend eternity separated from God. 
You think, I'm going to connect them to Jesus for life change. There's lots of reasons why you might think of different people. Do you ever think about the person you see in the mirror every morning? Do you ever think that maybe, maybe even in your attempts to bring other, maybe you come to church for your kids, but that God wants to do something in your life? Maybe you're the one that God wants to change. Do you want that? Now, asking that question I get can be like, it's like if I asked a bunch of Christians, do you, do you want to love Jesus more? Yeah! Like, everybody has to say yes to that question, right? But there are a lot of questions that if I asked them on the surface level, it would seem like you'd have to say yes to them. And I'm going to give you some examples, and I want you to think, now can you understand what Jesus is asking this man? So how many people here want to have an amazing body and want to be really fit? Everybody be like, yeah! But then you know how that happens. It's not like it's a secret. you got to work out a lot. And stop thinking food is fun, okay? You're done with that. Food is fuel. Just put the right elements into your body. We have scientists who come tell you exactly which elements to put in. No sauces, by the way. And put them all in your body. And, it, and you're like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, I don't want that so much. I like the idea of that. How many people here want to learn a new language? Wouldn't it be great to learn a new language? That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? If you could speak French. If I could speak French to my wife, it'd be so romantic. And, you know, the French. And I don't know any French, and so I just talk kind of Italianish sounding. Or Spanish, Spanish would be practical. Mandarin, wouldn't Mandarin be a great language to learn? We owe the Chinese, like what, a gazillion, patrillion, billion dollars or something? It's like going up as I'm talking. It might be a good idea to know Mandarin at some point. I don't know. It'll just take you like, I don't know, a thousand hours and a bunch of discipline. Still want to learn a language? <laughs> but I asked the question on the surface level, it seems like an obvious answer. I bet I'm going to guess that no one's problem here is that you pray too much. Did anybody hear that you say that my problem in life, I've just been praying too much. Does that have Anybody raise your hand and say that? I'd love to give you a prayer request. I see hands. I'm a pastor. I'll see that hand. Anybody? No? So all of us, if I ask you the question, do you want to pray more? Could your prayer life use some more? Could you do some more praying? Every Christian here is probably going to go, yeah. All right. Well, here's what you got. It's going to mean less Netflix, maybe no social media. I don't know if I want it that bad. <laughs> like there's, So he's asking this guy this question that when you first read the text, you go, well, of course he wants to be healed. Does he really want to be healed? J.A. Finley Bible teacher tells us in the Middle East, there are many people, if they were healed, it would totally change their source of income. They make a really good living being an invalid. Do you really want to be healed? And you go back to this story and you start thinking about it, and I ask you this question Do you really want to experience life change? There's a cost associated with that. It's going to affect your relationship, it'll change the way you live now. Your routines are going to be different. Do you really want to experience life change, even if it's gradual? Just being more patient, more loving, being in community. I mean, it's bold and radical. It's going, to be, it's going to be a change. So you think about this story. Just go back to the passage after this. And so there's some time. It says there's this feast of the Jews. We don't know which feast it is. If you start studying this passage, read the Bible notes. All the scholars debate about it. Was it the Passover? Is it Pentecost? Is it Tabernacles? Here's the reality. We don't know. And if we needed to know, John would have told us. He didn't. He just told us. There's a feast that's happening. So you need to get the feel, the theme, the, the vibe of what's happening here. And so what would happen in these feasts is you, were, you got work off, which is amazing. So even if you weren't really a believer, you're like, I'm pumped to get the day off, hang out with the family. We have this festival. They're all, everybody's headed into the temple to celebrate this festival. It happens at least three times a year. And so you think about it. If you, if you experience Easter, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, you know what it's like. Everybody's excited. The pressure of work is off. You're going to celebrate. There's a festival that's taking place. Everybody's headed into the temple but Jesus goes somewhere else. Did you see that? Jesus goes to a place called Bethesda. Bethesda could be translated Aramaic, house of mercy, house of outpouring. It's the place where all the sick people are at. Let me tell you something. The religious, the upper echelons, the people who wanted to be seen and see people, none of them went there. And Jesus is going to a place that nobody else is choosing to go to unless they have to. 
Which makes me wonder, where would Jesus go if he were here today? And would it be Bible study Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Or would he go to some places where there's a lot of sinners and there's sick people? Where would he? I remember one time I was speaking to some missionaries and, and I went to these two young ladies and I said, so where are you working? And they said, we're working in a leper colony. And I thought, those still exist? I didn't know that that still existed today. And it got me thinking, where would Jesus be if he were here today? And you look where the, Jesus goes. He's not where the Pharisees and Sadducees aren't hanging out here. And Jesus walks in to this place, and you've got to try and experience this place and think about what it was like. And so I mentioned hospital earlier, but remember, there's no nurses going around cleaning everything up. There's no doctors there diagnosing diseases, trying to prescribe medications. There's nobody there that's going through and giving them like a holistic plan, how they can get better. There's a bunch of desperate people, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people, and they're coming to this pool. This guy's been doing it for 38 years. Can you think about what it smells like here? Pretty, pretty terrible, I'm going to imagine. I told you last week that we went to uh, Madagascar. What I didn't tell you about was the flight home. On the flight home from Paris to JFK, it was about an you know, eight to ten hour flight. On the flight back, do you know where I got seated? You know, anybody who's ever flown before and you get the ticket and you're on a 500 passenger flight, and you know, this, so the letters aren't just like A and B. A and B must be window and aisle. No, it's like I got K for my seat, and there's a big number in front of it. Where, I hope it's not a middle seat. So even if you're not religious and you get on a plane and you got K, you're praying, God, I hope it's not a middle seat. I hope it's not a middle seat. And so I'm walking down this plane. I get on. The flight attendant says, go over there and go to the back. I'm like, to the back? What do you mean to the back? All the way to the back is a big number. And so I'm going through, and, I'm, and as I'm walking, I'm going, not a middle seat. He meant the back. Do you know what's at the back? The bathroom. A 500-passenger plane. But I wasn't sitting in front of the bathroom. No, 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 that would have been too good. I was sitting next to the bathroom. And so I literally could open the door for people. Hey, well, I know why you're here. Here you go. I'm timing you. You know, it's like, I smell some of the worst odors I've ever smelled in my life over that time period. And there were times where I was saying, God, what did I do? Like, what's wrong? I don't believe in karma. But I was like, what are you teaching me here? I promise all 500 people on that plane went to the same bathroom. And every crying kid stood outside of it. That's what happened. (laughs) Can you imagine the odors at this place where all these sick people are out? There was one guy I was reading this week. His name is Dwight Peterson. He's a doctor. He was was teaching on all of the paraplegics that are healed in the New Testament. The powerful thing about it is this man was in a wheelchair as he was teaching these things. And he talks about what it's like to be a paraplegic here today. Now, Now, I don't want to do anything to minimize that. For anybody who might be watching online or sitting in the back and you're in a wheelchair, you can't get out of it, I'm not saying it's easy, okay? Don't hear me saying that. But can you imagine what it was like without the modern conveniences we have today? Without the technology, without the wheelchairs, without the things that we have? And what Dr. Peterson ended up saying was that many paraplegics, they can't control their bowels, can't control their bladder. And so you see this man where it says, when the water stirs, i got no one to help me out. Maybe no one wants to come to this guy because of the way he smells. No one wants to touch that. And Jesus picks this guy out of all the people there who's been there for 30. Jesus only heals one guy in this story, by the way. On a picture of grace. A picture of him choosing you. He goes to this guy out of 38 years he's been there. He says, do you want to be healed? And the guy, it's a yes or no question. Don't you hate it when you ask somebody a yes or no question and they start telling you a story? Yeah. Amen. The guy doesn't answer yes or no. He says, I don't have any hope. The water gets stirred. I got nobody to help me out. Don't you see how bad my situation is? He's been living in that for a long time. What are his obstacles to being healed here? 
There are a lot of them. A lot of times, the reason why we don't experience life change in Jesus Christ is because of us. Think about some of the obstacles here. There's at least three. I'll give you three. We'll unpack them here. I'll tell you what all three of them are right now if you're taking notes. One of them is this. It's complacency. The next one's community. The third one is callousness. You think about here for this guy, complacency. He's been doing this for 38 years. Why does he keep coming back? He knows he doesn't have a shot at getting in the pool. Some of you aren't even 38 years old. I understand that when I ask this question. Have you ever done anything for 38 years in a row? (laughs) That becomes the normal. So all of you who are 38 years old, breathing. Like that would be one of those things. In the first service I said, have you ever done anything for 38 years? And then a child said about his mom, that's you, mom. She's 38 years old. (laughs) Kids, please don't. Parents don't like that stuff, just so you know. Anything you've done over and over and over again, that becomes your routine. It becomes your rut sometimes. And some of you, even when you read your Bible, what time you read your Bible, how you pray, the things you pray for, you just do the same thing all the time, mix it up a little bit. You become, it's easy to become complacent in, in that process. This guy's been doing this for 38 years. I know this guy has a favorite spot because I know people. So I know that some of you are sitting in the same seat today that you'll be sitting in next week. It's a friend of mine I just winked at. A guy, by the way, too. This guy does the same thing all the time. It's easy to become complacent. And part of this guy's complacency was his disability. Sometimes our identity becomes our difficulty. We've got pain in our life, and it becomes a thing we realize that people pay attention to that, and that's how we relate with people, and and then we can start to, what would happen if we became healed? Almost like we'd lose our identity. So in the first service, there was a season in my life in 2010 to 2012 where I had a great struggle with anxiety. You know, some of you might be wired, you know, a little too tight or whatever, and your A-type personalities, or you're driven or whatever it is, and so anxiety can kind of be like a natural propensity for you. And I would get freaked out about things from my past. I'd start having, like, conversations in my head about things in the future that had never happened yet, probably would never happen, but I'm, like, trying to solve problems that didn't even exist yet. It's like this chaos happening in my mind. And I'll just to tell you this, as someone who struggled with it myself, anxiety is a faith issue, just so you know. It only comes down to do you trust that God is sovereign? Do you trust that no matter what happens in the future, that he holds in his hands, he's got a plan for you that's good, and even if it's painful and it's difficult in your life, he's going to use it for good in your life and ultimately for his glory, and the world doesn't revolve around you anyways. But I remember during that season of my life, there were some people that I would sit down with on a regular basis, just people I had opened up to and told them what I was struggling with, thoughts that I was having. And I remember for a couple of weeks, I didn't have any like drama. I didn't have anything to talk to them about. I remember at one meeting saying to a guy, I said, you know what, I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't really have much to talk to you about with this stuff. And he went, whoa, 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 our goal is not chaos. <laughs> okay, that our community is not based on your chaos. We want no drama. But here's the thing, I had gotten so used to living in the difficulty, the difficulty became part of my identity. Let me tell you something, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's not your identity. The pain you have, if your identity is found in your, your disease, or your, you're going to be healed. What are you going to do in heaven? Who am I? Let me tell you who you are. The Bible tells you in John, in this book, in John chapter 1 and verse 12, all who believed on him, believes a key word in the book of John, by the way, it happens almost a hundred times between nouns and verbs. All who believe on him, he's given the right to be called children of God. So why, those of you who don't know Jesus yet, why haven't you trusted Jesus? And you know, know what it says about that in Ephesians chapter 1? That he's adopted you into his family. So just as he picks this guy, out of all the people in the crowd, he picks this one guy. He picked you. He chose you to be in his family. He's adopted you into his family. He's called you into his family. And he's given you the right to be called children of God. That means you have all of his inheritance, every spiritual blessing. He's deposited in you the Holy Spirit. You have the same power living in you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. How could you be complacent? 
I just can't get out of this rut. I'm trying forward, reverse. I'm trying my thing. Maybe the problem is that you're doing it and your effort. You don't understand his grace. You don't understand his power. Don't be complacent. Next thing is community. Think about for this guy, these are his people. It's been said by a wise philosopher. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. <laughs> or I could quote the Bible. It's not good for man to be alone. Like we, we're supposed to live in community. We're all supposed to have relationships. Now, many of us naturally live in isolation and in secrecy, and we don't want anybody to really know stuff. That's why we do so much of the small talk. We don't want to really get into our hearts. What do you think about for this guy? If he says, yes, I want to be healed. Who, you want to be healed? Yeah, I want to be healed. He doesn't ever have to go back to this place again. If he does ever come back to this place, he's not one of these people. He's no longer one of them. Why'd you get healed and I didn't get healed? He's an, if he says yes, he's turning his back on his community. Who's your community? Who are the people in your life that have a, you have a real relationship with? Some of you would say nobody, but who are the people in your life? And let me tell you this. You know, sometimes you hear motivational speakers say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with in five years. You're going to be most like the people you spend the most time with. I don't know. I've never seen a study on that. It's just like all these motivational speakers use that. Here's what I do know. If you want to be a gossip, hang around with gossips. If you want to be Debbie Downer, hang around with a bunch of negative people. You want to be worldly, hang around with a bunch of worldly people. You want to be materialistic, hang around with a bunch of materialistic people. You want to be godly, find some people that call you up in your faith. That doesn't mean they all have to be at a further spot than you spiritually, by the way, either. I was thinking about this uh, this week, and my daughter had just come back from uh, New Life Camp. Their theme this year was home improvement, and we are picking our kids up from camp. And my oldest daughter, I said, you know, how was it? And she's telling me about fun stuff they did and friends and stuff. I said, what about the spiritual impact? Like the theme that they had for the week is like, it didn't really apply to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now I know we're going to have a talk. What do you mean it didn't really apply to you? And I said, well, it's about home improvement. So they just kept talking about bringing the gospel into your home and sharing the gospel with your parents. I'm like, well, Dad, you're a pastor. Mom's been a Christian longer than you. How am I going to bring that gospel into our home? (laughs) So I reminded her of something that happened about a month or two months before she had gone to camp. I said, do you remember, and, and I'll just tell you the story from my perspective. I walked into the kitchen. I've got, just so you don't, you know this, you might be new to our church. I'm married, got my wife, and four daughters. There's five women in my home. Sometimes I walk into situations and I think, I am not meant to be here, okay? <laughs> I walked into the kitchen one day, and there was some drama going on with my wife. Two of the girls were in there, and I literally thought to myself, I wish I wasn't standing here right now, but now I am, and they've seen me, so I'm like stuck here. It kept happening, and these words, are, like the stuff's boiling up, and some of you might have this perception of me because I preach the Bible that like I'm always walking in the Spirit, just so you know that is not true, and I wasn't in this moment. And I started to say some stuff. Doesn't matter if it was true. It was true. Doesn't matter if it was true. The way I said it was harsh, not tactful, not gentle, not kind, lots of things about the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, that it wasn't happening in that moment. And then I went to walk in the other room. I said my stuff, getting out of the room, and, I go, and my wife stops me, and I said some more stuff. It probably wasn't, it wasn't good, okay? <laughs> and I go into this room, and I'm not going to like work on a sermon or anything in this moment. I know I'm not walking in the Spirit, but I'm checking some emails. If I sent you an email during that time, I'm sorry. But anyway, this to me, I'm just getting some emails dealt with, responding to the correspondence stuff. An hour later, Ella walks in. Ella says to me, Dad, how many times do you challenge people a year? I'm like, what, what do you want to know? Why? I said, well, you want to know how many times I preach? I hope every time I preach there's at least one challenge in there. I don't know how many times I challenge people. What are you asking me? And she said, well, how many times do you challenge people a year? I said, I don't know. I can't come up with the, that. What, what do you really want to know? And she goes, I want to know how many of those challenges you actually live out. 
did Ella just walk in or the Holy Spirit? I'm not sure what just happened here. Then I, I, I wanted to say at that moment, you can leave now, but I said, um, what are you really asking? What are you saying right now? And she goes, well, you know, the things that you said out there, specifically to mom, they might have been true, but the way you said them is the, the way you tell me not to talk. So she and I are both pretty direct people. It doesn't seem like it was the most gentle thing you could have said. And I was like, okay, Ella, now you can leave. Like, and I repented. I went down to my wife, and I started to talk to her, and I apologized to her, and we were talking through that. And I said, let me tell you what Ella did. When I told Shanna what Ella did, she literally fell on our bed laughing at me. <laughs> like, I just love that God's, God's coming after you. So she got that. But let me tell you something. I know the Bible better than Ella. I've known Jesus longer than she has, but she's calling me up. She's calling me out in my sin. Who in your life? Maybe you're the only Christian in your home. Maybe in your home you don't talk about Jesus. Maybe that's not happening. But who? Who is your community? And who's calling you out on your sin? Who's calling you to walk closer with Jesus? And we talk about, you know, think about what's happened here with these two churches, and we use the slogan, better together. And you know what? That wasn't about two organizations becoming one organization. What does that mean for relationships? Because I can cast a vision for you about the campus. I can cast a vision for you about us as a corporate, you know, organization together. And we have a vision. So think about what happened on that campus. Talk about renovations over there. They're renovating the children's building. Kids that don't know Jesus are going to trust Jesus in that building. We're going to renovate the, the auditorium that where the adults are going to come. Marriages are going to be reconciled in there. People are going to trust Christ as their Savior. Addictions are going to be healed. Bondage is going to be broken. Amazing stuff's going to happen. Corporate, what about you? What about you in your life? Better together. Two organizations become one. We can do more together than we can on our own. The resources, the people, the vision. But what about you? What does that mean? Who are the people that you've become in a relationship with since this happened? Are you really better together? How, How are those people calling you up? How are they sharpening you in your faith? What's your vision for relationships? Let me read you Hebrews chapter 3 to give you something to chew on for community. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You don't cultivate your heart. This is what happens. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But, here's, the, here's how you do this, exhort one another every day, not just Sunday, every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Which the next one we're going to talk about is callousness. What's your vision for relationships? Who's your community? Can I tell you something as a pastor? Why I would go to church if I wasn't a pastor? You ever ask yourself, like, why do I go? Why did I deal with the parking lot? Why did I deal with waiting in line to check my kids in? Why do I do all this stuff? Get in here and got to find a seat and tell everybody to scoot in. Like, why do I deal with all that stuff? Let me tell you why it's not. I wouldn't do it because of the preaching. <laughs> Is that weird for a pastor to say? You can get the best preaching in the world on a podcast. We got technology now. Okay, so you don't even need the best preacher locally. Like, you can find the best preaching in the world. Throughout history, you can find old messages. Wouldn't be because of the sermon. You know why? Because there's something that happens when you're pulling in the parking lot and you're seeing people, not when you're not walking in the spirit, by the way. Get out of my spot. No, no, I'm not talking about that. But when you see people that you don't ever see, that you might not ever know, that also love Jesus and are coming to this place to worship the king together. Something happens when you're coming to this room and you might see somebody who looks very different than you and has different tastes than you and dress different than you, likes different things than you, has a lot of different views on maybe on life than you, but they love Jesus and so do you. See, I would come to church because of what happened right before I got up here to preach when the worship leader said, just the voices, because something happens in my soul when I hear you singing songs, even though I might not talk to you today, God uses you to impact my life. Who's your community? Who are your, who are your people? Who's calling you up? I'm not saying you shouldn't have friends that are not believers. I'm not saying you shouldn't have people that are behind you. But, but who are those people in your life that are sharpening you as iron sharpens iron? 
So for this person, they say yes. They're walking away from their community. Some of you do need to walk away from your community. Some of those relationships that you're closest with, they're not helping you. And that's one of the reasons you haven't taken the next step in your faith journey. What's stopping you? The, the third thing we have listed here is callousness. And so you think about this guy, anything you've done doing for 38 years, obviously is going to lend itself toward that's just what you do. kind of goes with the complacency. I was thinking about this guy crawling around, though, and the calluses on his hands and what it must be like for this guy. And then think about the callousness in our hearts and what we see. You see with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. You see with Jonah in the Old Testament. People that say no to God. You know, every time you say no to God, you're more likely to say no the next time. And God speaks to you and he calls you, hey, it's time to take a step of faith. Why don't you share your faith here? It's time for you. To, here's an opportunity for you to be generous. Do you see that need? You can be kind. You can be gentle. No, not this one. Here's why. And it's like the voice gets a little bit quieter and a little bit more distant the next time. A little bit quieter, a little more distant. And eventually your heart gets so hard you don't even hear him calling you anymore. Which means callousness in our heart. What do you do about that? Because ultimately what that is, that's not what, what, what Jesus said to the church in Laodicea. That's what he said to the church in Ephesus. You know what he said to the church in Ephesus? Hey, you, you guys know the Bible. You do a bunch of good deeds. I just, I just got one problem with you. You lost your first love. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. Love your neighbor. You don't love me anymore. So what does he tell him to do? Repent. You want to break a calloused heart? Repent. Repentance is you stop. You are headed in one direction, you stop, and you turn another direction. Some of you need to repent for your lack of repentance. Because it's a regular part of the Christian life. So you need to repent because you don't love Jesus anymore. Repent of your anger. Repent of your lust. Repent of your jealousy. Repent of your pride. They, I share the truth. I share the truth all the time. I'm always sharing the gospel. And you're really proud of it. And you're doing it in your flesh. Repent of your sharing the gospel. It's a hard heart that we often have. And you see what happens here in this passage. Go back to verse 7. The sick man answered him. said, what? Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him. Sir, doesn't even know who Jesus is. Doesn't know who's standing there with him. I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Can you picture the scene? So we talked to you about smelling the smells. Let's go back to the airport for a minute. Do you want to see selfishness? Hang out at an airport. If any of you, some people, you know, we might argue with my theology from the Bible. Uh, the, you know, I believe everybody's a sinner, and we all sin, fall short of the glory of God. Some of you will be like, oh, people are good. We're genuinely good. Really? Go to the airport. I'll argue from experience. I've got, whenever Shannon and I fly together, we always joke about our favorite comedian. His name is Brian Regan. He does this bit where he talks about when the flight attendant announces, do you know, some of you heard this, when he announces to everybody that's sitting there waiting for their flight, that they're going to start boarding the flight, and they say, we're going to board by group, so remain seated until your group is called, and he says, somehow that gets translated to everyone's ears, rush to the gate! Everybody get up! Push, shove, do whatever you got to do! Here's something, we have a signed seat, unless you're flying southwest, if you're flying southwest, let me just tell you what happens, you're, flying, you're sitting in the middle, okay, between two WWF wrestlers, you're just going to be there, It's what happens. But why do we do that? Because we naturally take care of us. And you think about what's happening here. There's nobody helping each other. It's every man for himself, every child for themselves, every woman for themselves. So we're going to push and fight and claw. And Jesus knew what this man had done to try and get in that pool. And he still goes to him. And this guy says, I'm trying to get down. Another buddy, somebody else steps in front of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Thank you, Jesus. I hadn't thought about that one. Think about that. Jesus said, get up and walk. I tried that before. <laughs> you don't think that like, oh, I don't know, a month after his accident or whatever happened. You know, I, it's been a month since I walked. I should try to walk. Five years, 10 years, 25 years, 38 years later, you don't think the guy thought, I should probably try to walk today. 
Why is it when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk, the man at once was healed, he took up his bed and he walked? Because there's power in the words of Jesus. See, it's different when Jesus says something than if I say something. If I look at somebody who can't walk and say, get up, walk. I don't have power in my words. You know what? I didn't speak the world into existence, but Jesus did. In fact, some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. This miracle that he does right here sets him up to do that very thing, and that's what all of chapter 5 is about. We're not going to get to all of that, but all of chapter 5 is about him proclaiming equality with God, that he is God. You know what the Bible says about him? In John chapter 1 and verse 3, this book, it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. Some of you might hear, well, Jesus created everything. You're like, no, didn't God, the Father, create everything? Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him all things were created, talking about Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or your job or wherever you're at, all things were created through him and for him. Amen. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so when Jesus says to this man, get up, Jesus empowers this man's legs to work. Because here's what you see. Whatever God's, when Jesus speaks, his word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And he, he uses it to pierce your heart, to correct you, to rebuke you, to train you. And whatever he commands you to do, he empowers you to do. And so Jesus isn't standing before you and saying, get up, take up your mat, and walk. But he is saying, come follow me. He did begin a good work in you, and every command he gives you to follow after that, he's going to empower you to do. So what's stopping you? What's stopping you? Some of you, what's stopping you is you're trying to do it in your own power. And that's the very thing he was confronting in this passage. This is an amazing miracle up until this point. We could stop here and we could do an invitation here, but there's so much more. And the whole thing pointed to something else. He was confronting the religious leaders who tried to live in their own strength. And so my second question, the last question for you is this. If you do want that life change, do you depend upon your personal performance or God's grace for that life change? Do you depend upon your personal performance, how you're going to do, whether you're trying hard enough, whether you're working enough? God, do you see all the things I'm doing? Would you just smile down on me? Or is it on God's grace? Because this whole miracle is all about grace. But look what happens next, verse 9. I read you the first half, intentionally didn't read the second half yet. And at once this man was healed, he took up his mat, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Doom, doom, doom. You ever watch a movie, and it's like things are going great, and then they reveal a little bit more information, and you're like, whoa, commercial break, like black screen, like the suspense, that's, the, that's what just happened here with John. Amazing miracle. This guy got up, and he walked, praise God, it was the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that, Jesus. And that's exactly why Jesus was doing it. And some of you think about, you know exactly how Jesus would do stuff. You know what Jesus is doing? He's going to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's poking them in the chest. He's starting to fight with them on purpose. Now, let me tell you something. When we have new guests come to our church, and we're over the campus, don't walk up to them and start poking them in the chest. I'm going to start fighting with you and see what's going on in your life. Now, see, Jesus knew their hearts, okay? And what he's doing, he's not fighting just for the sake of fighting. He's confronting them so that their blind eyes will be open to see you think you please God by all this outward stuff that you do, but you need your heart transformed. So when Jesus commands people, your, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Sadducees, the Pharisees. People are thinking to themselves, that's not possible. And she's going, that is right, and you need me. You need my grace. Amen. But what he commands him, be holy as I am holy. Don't lust. Who are you to judge? Jesus commands these things, and it's like, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah, you need his grace. 
That's what he's pointing these people to. Do you depend upon his grace or your personal performance? And so he confronts these guys on the Sabbath. Look what happens next. So the Jews, talking about not just all Jewish people. This is an anti-Semitic passage of Scripture here. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders. What religious leaders oftentimes do, because they're talking about eternal life, that's powerful, is they try to manipulate and control people. And that's what was happening here. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was setting people free. And so these guys are trying to control people through all their rules and regulations. So it says, oh, the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now think about this for a second. This guy hasn't walked in 38 years. What do you think he did after Jesus said, take up your bed and walk? I'm going to guess my man was skipping and jumping around. If you read Acts chapter 3, there's a guy who can't walk and it says he's dancing into the temple. He was doing the Fortnite dance. You should read it. It's in there. <laughs> Acts chapter 3. It's in, it's in the Greek. You'd find it later. It's, yeah. I think that maybe what happened with this guy is he became a track star. I'll tell you why I think that. He had the power of Jesus in his legs. <laughs> like, he'd be running everywhere if I was that guy. What do you think he's doing? And they say to him, why are you carrying your mat? If I'm him, I'm going, I can walk. Like, I but back up. Jesus didn't have to tell him to take up his mat. He could have just said walk. And these guys are upset, not because he was healed, but because he's carrying his mat. What jerks. They, this guy gets healed, and they're going, I don't know, was, was that done right? I'm not sure I agree with this healing. If I'm the healed guy, I'm going, okay. I don't care if you like it or not. I can walk. They're upset because he's carrying a mat. Here's why. They violated the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an easy thing for Jesus to pick on these guys about because what they had done with the Sabbath is what they did with God's word. They continually took the law and twisted it. And what religion does is it tries to take things that are meant to be a blessing and they make them a burden. Do you know that all of God's commandments in your life should be a blessing to you? And here's the game changer for some of you. When you realize that those commands are not just God saying, hey, I want to see if you can obey this. I want to see if you can do that. I'm just trying to take things away from you. I'm going to hide all the fun. No, they're for your benefit. That God actually knows what's best for you, wants what's best for you, wants relationship with you, and he's showing you how to have that and how to live as people that have been set apart for him. It's for you that he commands you to do these things. That's why he empowers you to do these things. But we don't trust him. It all comes down to a faith issue. That's why every sin is a faith issue. I mentioned that last week. Somebody asked me about that. Because it's always saying, I don't trust God's commands are best. I don't trust that he knows best. I don't trust. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. God's holding out on us. We're going to go get the, he just, We need to know this. It's a lie. And so these guys, what they've done is they've taken, they've made what was a blessing into a burden. They took a commandment of God. See, if you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2 and verse 3, there's an interesting pattern. It says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and there was morning the second day, and there was evening and there was morning the third day, and there was evening and there was morning all the way to the sixth day. But on the seventh day, it says that God rested. And it does not say there was evening and there was morning like there was an end to it. Interesting. Why not? Because God's still in his Sabbath rest. But he's also sustaining all things, holding all things together, judging wickedness, loving people, holding the universe together, and he doesn't have to strive to do it. He's in rest, and he's inviting you into that rest. Chuck Swindoll says it like this. I brought a quote from Chuck Swindoll in his book. It's just titled Jesus. He says, disobedient people have denigrated the Sabbath. Self-reliant people have ignored the Sabbath. Self-righteous people have twisted the Sabbath into something burdensome. Nevertheless, God has kept it open. But what you see in the New Testament is he, he talks about it's not about a day. And what Jesus could do here, Jesus could come up with all their rules and talk about how ridiculous their rules are. And I could tell you that. They see in Exodus chapter 20, it says, the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't do any work. But the Pharisees, they decided that's not clear enough for everybody. Let's just be real clear about what that means. And they came up with 39 categories of work. 
And underneath every one of those categories, there were subcategories of what it meant to not, you can't pick anything on the Sabbath was one of their categories. So just to give you an idea of the application. So a woman couldn't look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. They actually have a book that writes that up and says that. You can't wear dentures on the Sabbath because they might fall out of your mouth and you'd be tempted to pick them up. Can't pick on the Sabbath. And so see how they take something that was meant to be a blessing. God's inviting you into his rest, which is actually found in him, not just taking a break. And they've turned it into this huge burden. And what Jesus is doing, though, is he's showing, no, you've, you've done what religion does. Religion tries to transform people from the outside in. But see, what I do is I transform people from the inside out. See, Jesus didn't come to start another religion. Some people oftentimes talk about it. You know, there's God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, and God of the Old Testament is Judaism, and God of the New Testament, that's, that's Christianity. And Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to restore a relationship. There was a broken relationship between him and people because of our sin. And what he restores at the cross is not starting a new religion. He's bringing you into relationship with God. And so what he's showing here is this I want the rest is still available. To sa- I can work on the Sabbath. My father's working on the Sabbath, is what he says later. And that's why he claims equality with God later in this passage. And he goes to this guy and he says to him, Hey, you experienced my grace. Don't sin anymore. Something worse is going to happen to you. Well, now he's giving him the rules. No, you experience grace. Live in light of the grace. He's inviting him in. He tells these Pharisees later in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4. The way that you preach this stuff, you, you, put, you heap burdens on people and you won't even lift a finger to help them. But he talks about burdens in another place in Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter 11. Just come to me, all who are burdened and weary, and I'll give you rest for your soul. My yoke, which is his teaching about the law, is easy. Would you understand what I'm teaching about the law? And it's not what those guys are teaching. See, I'm different than them. You don't, you don't celebrate a day. What does he invite you to? Not to a day. He's not inviting you to a church. He's not inviting you to an event. He's not inviting you to time out on the lake. Come to me. He's inviting you to a person. That's his grace. So do you depend upon his grace or do you depend upon your personal performance and getting out of a spiritual rut? What's stopping you? Some of you, like me, reverse, forward. I'm just going to try all the things I know to do. Why don't you try just coming to him? Saying, what are you calling me to, Jesus? If you command me to do it, you're going to empower me to do it. Maybe I need a new community. Maybe I've been complacent. Maybe I need to repent of the callousness of my own heart. But I'm coming to you. Let's pray. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Worship team, you can go ahead and come. And I told you, if you're, you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'll give you an opportunity to trust Jesus. And let me tell you how you do that. The Bible says that we're all sinners, that we fall short of God's perfect standard. His standard is perfection, holiness, and none of us meet that. And so you can say, well, I'm better than this. I might not be as good as that person, but I'm better than this person. That's fine. Those are your standards. God's standard is himself, which is perfection. And we all fall short of that. And if you've never acknowledged that before God and then called upon him because you need a savior, just like that man, he's sitting there, that whole miracle's grace. What did that guy do to deserve Jesus to come to him? He didn't even ask Jesus to come to him. And Jesus picked him out of the crowd and Jesus might be speaking to your heart right now and going, he's talking to you. He's talking about you. You need to trust me right now. And the way you do that is through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there's a free gift, it's eternal life, but you've got to receive the gift. You've got to take the gift. The Bible tells us how to do that. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, If you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. There you confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You will be saved. And so you do that right now. 
If you need to trust Christ as your Savior, just right now, you call, you acknowledge your sin and ask him to be your Savior. And if you're going to pray that prayer, would you just raise your hand? Would you just pop it up and say, I want to pray and ask Jesus to be my Savior today. And, and I'll pray, and I'll tell you to, to pray after me. Not because the words I say are magical, but if you need to pray that prayer, would you just raise your hand? I'm looking up to see if there's any hands that are being raised here in the back. If you'd raise it up high, I can see movement, but I want to make sure I don't say the wrong thing. And many of you here have trusted Jesus as your Savior. But you might be something that you think is stopping you from taking the next step of faith. And so what we're going to do today, I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But if you want, if you want to come forward, we're going to just open up the front of the church like an altar to God today. And if you come up and you kneel down and you pray at the front, nobody's going to mess with you. The elders aren't going to come. The prayer counselors aren't going to come to you. You can just have time alone with God and say whatever you want. You want to repent of sin, you repent of sin. If you want to ask him to speak to your heart, you do that. You've got a burden you want to lay down. He says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Just come to him. And if you do want to talk with someone, you want somebody to pray with you, I'm just going to ask if you're one of our prayer counselors or one of our elders or leadership team, if you just go off and stand to the side by the pictures that are on the side of the room and just be over there kind of stationed and available for people. Uh, you don't have to go and approach anybody, but if somebody comes to you, you just pray for them. Let me pray. Father, I just pray. I pray for those who need to take next steps of faith. Maybe some that are complacent. They've been in the same spot spiritually for longer than they even know right now. That you would tap them on the shoulder and call them to you, call them to yourself. I pray for some that are trying to live the Christian life in their own strength and the very people that you said in Matthew chapter 11, come to me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? Are you worn out yet from trying to do this on your own? And you call them to yourself. Will you just pour your grace into their life? You help them understand grace in a way they never have before today, right in this moment. And God, I pray for some that, that need to step out and come and pray. I pray you give them courage, the boldness. If you're calling them to step out, you empower them to step out and give them the, the boldness, whether it's to go to someone else and ask for prayer or whether it's to, to come down here and pray at the front. God, I, I just pray that you speak to hearts today. And if you want to draw people to yourself, that you do that. And I pray if there's anybody here that needs to trust your son Jesus to save or they do in this moment. If you want to trust Jesus, acknowledge your sin and pray something just like this. God, I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And you might even confess specific sins. I need you. I need you to save me from my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I'm going to stop trusting in myself. I'm going to stop trusting in materialism. I'm going to stop trusting in my religion. I'm going to stop trusting in my own efforts. I'm going to stop trusting in my false hopes that if I just did this or just had this or if I just became this, then I'd be fulfilled. I need you. I need you to forgive me of my sin. I need to be right with you. And ask Jesus to, to be your sin. Call upon him to be Lord. You are Lord of my life. That means he's in charge. You are Lord of my life today you did that, I just asked before you leave that you check on that connection card that was mentioned at the very beginning of the service. If you just check on there that you trusted Jesus, your Savior today, I want to send you an email and just talk to you about how to grow. I'm not going to show up at your house. I'm not going to try and make you do something. I just want to give you some tools and how you can grow in a relationship with Jesus. And Father, thank you for working in our midst. I pray you continue to do so as, as we go to worship right now. In Jesus' name I pray.